0: Welcome to City Council. I am super excited for this episode because we have such a big get on this interview. We were able to get City Council member Nithya Raman on the pod. Thank you for being here, Nithya.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm super excited to have you here. There's been so much going on with City Council, but first, I want to go a little bit into your background. What got you interested in local politics? How did you find yourself in this position? What inspired you to run?
1: Well, I can definitely talk about that when you said background, Balavi, I thought you were gonna talk about the fact that we might be both from South India.
0: We are. I'm half I'm half Tamil and half Sindhi.
1: <laughs> okay, well, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's where all interviews that start off with this level of overlap should start. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Where
0: where are you really from, Nidia? Where am I really from? That's
1: right. <laughs> well, I'm American, but um, yeah. I actually I was born in Kerala. and oh, I moved, cool. But I but my family speaks Tamil, and I'm actually married to a Tamilian American. As well. Oh, so. cool.
0: That's awesome. I was born in Texas. I grew up in Utah, and my parents are from Chennai. My dad is my dad's family is from Kanchipuram. Um, oh my gosh. So yeah. <laughs> I know when you logged on, I was like, okay, the hair I is know. the same. <laughs> what products do you use? This is amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, we da- We dad is my new favorite. Ooh, okay, cool. cool. Yeah, available in drugstores.
0: Hell yeah, I'll look that up. Okay, okay. <laughs> now that we have that connection out of the way, I will see you at community events. I assume. <laughs> <That's right. laughs>
1: yes, absolutely. Wait, how did how did you and your husband meet? We happened to go to college together. Oh and, cool! yeah. And then we had family friends that introduced us actually before he started at, at college. And so we, we kind of knew each other and we saw each other on campus, but. Okay. I, so it was an arranged
0: marriage with family. <laughs> <friends>. <laughs> technically, <laughs> technically an arranged. Technically an arranged marriage.
1: Yeah. Okay. Exactly.
0: Amazing. Wow. <laughs> traditional girl over here. Very, um,
1: very traditional. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. What does your husband do? He um works in TV. He's a writer.
0: Oh wow. Okay. I was like you have so many connections to the comedy community. The comedy community was going hard for you during the campaign. Very hard. Very hard. You have an in with the community. We love it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you have and you have twins that are 6-year-olds, is that correct?
1: Uh, they just turned 7, but yes. Oh, turned yeah. 7. Okay, okay. How, what is that like? Um so when they were little, it was really hard when they were first born. Uh, it was incredibly hard because both of them would be crying at the same time. And Ooh, yeah. they were up like multiple times a night, both of them, which is very normal. But, you know, it just was exhausting for us. But now it's amazing. They have built in best friends. And yeah, absolutely. Just, love, you know, in love with each other and um, don't do anything without each other. And it's just been really wonderful.
0: That's awesome. and
1: And during the pandemic was actually really turned out to be. Very useful because they didn't miss not going to school as much as I think other kids did who were you had your lonely. own
0: little daycare at home.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the pause. Oh my God. Amazing.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think
1: every parent thinking about pandemic homeschooling is like, ha.
0: Ah. <laughs> yeah. I was tutoring on Zoom during that time and I cannot imagine what it would have been like to have kids at home. Like that seems so intense.
1: I was, uh, I had kids at home, I was running for office and my husband was working full-time as well. So oh,
0: wow. it was just
1: insane. It was absolutely insane. But That's wild. Yeah.
0: So what got you into running for office?
1: Well, I am an urban planner by training and I had done a lot of work on urban poverty issues and I'd worked, I actually worked in India. I worked in Chennai for oh, cool. some time. I worked in Delhi. I did a lot of work on people who lived in slums and informal settlements there. And then in in LA, I'd worked on homelessness. and then um at some point started to notice that there was, you know, a lot of a lot more uh, people experiencing homelessness in my own neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And so I joined um I joined my neighborhood council's homelessness committee and through that met a few people and then started this volunteer group um which became um a group called Sela. It started mm-hmm. off just as like an informal, group of people. And we, we started getting to know people in our neighborhood who were experiencing homelessness. And then as we were doing the work as volunteers, and we start, I started the shower program as Uh part of Cela, which still is running. It's called the Saturday supper program. And they serve a hot meal and they have a shower truck there. And I was just, you know, there was so much volunteer enthusiasm on on how we respond to homelessness. Mm -hmm. There was so much eagerness to do something. And when I was looking at the city government and the infrastructure that was there responding to people who were experiencing homelessness, I just didn't feel that same sense of urgency reflected. Mm -hmm. And so that was what got me thinking about running for office. And then uh, as I started running, I think the message that I shared with people really resonated, which was that we can end homelessness and we can do it the right way by getting people who are experiencing homelessness into housing. Uh-huh. We don't have to arrest our way out of homelessness. We don't have to um we don't have to just push people around from sidewalk to sidewalk or from neighborhood to neighborhood, which is what we've historically done in the city of Los Angeles. Yeah. And when I shared that message, I feel like Los Angeles and and my district, council district 4 is the kind of district where that message really, really resonated with people. People felt so helpless looking at the crisis of homelessness around them. And more than anything else, wanted to do something about it and wanted to say that we could do something about it and get to a better city. And I think since I've been here now, I've now been here for just shy of two years, and we've really shown that that we can make progress on it if you're focused, if you try, and if you ensure that the work you're doing really keeps people at the center you know, people experiencing homelessness at the center of it.
0: Yeah, I think one thing that has been really inspiring watching local politics, and it keeps me motivated is that that sense of urgency is not just in your district, it's around the city. And now you have this whole progressive coalition after these midterms, we have Hugo, and we have Eunice's Kenneth, you know, it's kind of taken over that we want a change. Um, What, what programs have you implemented? And can you give us some stats of, you know, how you've progress since you've been in office?
1: Yeah. So we, um, you know, you end homelessness in, so let me take a step back. I want to talk about the differences between homelessness in Los Angeles and in other cities, which I think is really important to understand. So Los Angeles, you have this real crisis of homelessness that is playing out on our city streets. you see tents everywhere. you see encampments in in so many neighborhoods across the city. In other cities, even cities where there is a lot of homelessness, you don't see this kind of unsheltered homelessness. A huge percentage of people who are experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles are unsheltered. That means there's they're they're outdoors on this on mm-hmm. the street. And if you compare it to, for example, a city like New York, which has the same number or a little bit more, actually, a a slightly larger population of of unhoused people than the entire county of Los Angeles, there's actually way fewer people who are living on the streets. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because they have built over time, because they were mandated to do so by a court case in the 80s, the number of shelter beds that you need for every person who's experiencing homelessness in the city of New York. And that system is not perfect either, right? Um, people who go into the shelter system tend to stay in the shelter system for a very long time. They don't move on to permanent housing. They don't move out of that system. But the reality is so few people in the city of New York are living on the streets that despite the fact that Los Angeles has much better weather, mm-hmm. more people die of exposure on Los Angeles streets than they do in the city of New York, right? right? With the same homeless population. And so I think what what we can do here locally is really to think about our response as one that has been far less muscular, far less robust than the challenge, um, than, the, than the scale of the challenge that we face. And so what do we do in our district? Uh, what we've done is to increase the number of resources that we have available to us in the form of housing units and shelter beds. So we opened up a project room key site after I got elected, and now we're working to trans trans um kind of change that project room key site from uh from a temporary room key site to a long-term interim housing site for the district and so we've been working with city departments to do that so that we have those beds available to us we've also funded hotel and motel programs we've uh, raised resources from the governor's budget and from uh, and and from other programs to basically bring more resources in the form of, shelter for people who are experiencing homelessness throughout the district. And then we've used our team and we have a big homelessness team in our office. I mean, we have three people, which doesn't seem like it's big enough, but they work with a whole network of outreach providers, um, mental health uh, and healthcare workers, um, substance abuse, um, social workers, and, and they essentially manage that entire system to help bring people who are experiencing homelessness in the district into those beds and shelter beds and housing units that we've identified. And so essentially, it's like increasing resources and then doing the work to get people into those resources. Right? It doesn't seem like it's rocket science, but that is really what the city needs to be doing in a very muscular way across the entire um, ag- across its entire jurisdiction. And I think if we are st- if we're focused if we can continue putting those resources and we can really do it um, in a much more systematic way. And since I've been in office, we've housed um, over 250 people. Um, and we saw just in our first year, we only have stats from our first year, but we saw after double digit increases in homelessness in the district over the past few years prior, we actually saw a decrease in street homelessness for the first time in, in the district since I took over. So I'm really excited. I want to see it go much further down. Yeah. Um, I want to see people who are in our interim housing sites move on to permanent housing. But, you know, we're really seeing progress for the first time, which is exciting.
0: That's awesome. And I also want to do go back to the shower program that you started because I still recommend people to it. So that's that's oh, yeah, that a la- it's had a lasting
1: impact for sure. And um, I think that shower program, too, I think for me, one of the reasons I ran for office was actually the experience that I had working with people in that program. We had to turn volunteers away. Mm. We had too many people who wanted to help in that program, and so it signaled to me that there was just this hunger in Los Angeles for positive change and for positive change that aligned with the values of most Angelinos. Yeah, you know, we want to do it the right way. We want to solve these problems the right way. We want to do it in a way that really meets meets the moment. And um, it really like what one of the things I have. I want to focus on over these next next two years um, is really to find ways, much more systematic and kind of holistic ways for people to plug in and 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 really help and and give back to their communities because I think that hunger is still out there. It
0: definitely is. One thing that I wanted to ask you about was with hotel room key. Can you kind of go over the numbers for that? For, because from what I understand, it wasn't as like effective as you know some people hoped it would be. Can you kind of speak to the issues? surrounding it and how you would want to kind of improve the process going
1: forward well the the program did house a lot of people um it 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 got a lot of people indoors who were very very vulnerable on our city streets and at its peak actually ended up i think housing a, a couple thousand individuals or more mm-hmm. and the speed at which the program scaled up the speed um, at which the city was able to open hotel and motel rooms for people who are experiencing homelessness and bring them indoors quickly. I think for me, that was a really important test case to say, yes, if the city really responds to this, like it's a crisis, and the entire machinery is kind of reoriented around homelessness as a crisis, that we can actually see rapid progress. I think one of the challenges with Roomkey was that as with so many of the interventions around covid, I think we didn't um, you know, some things we did really, really well. I think testing um and uh, our initial vaccination program, I think the government at at every level really met the moment um in many ways. Um, and i and I was and I was very happy with how easily I was able to get tested in the city. um and, you know, when vaccines were available, That it was possible for me to get a vaccination and and they really made it possible for everyone in the city to get a vaccination. But with projects like project room key. You know, I think they got to a point where they saturated the number of hotel rooms that they found in that initial batch of of hotel owners that they had recruited, but they Mm -hmm. didn't go further than that, even though federal reimbursement was still available. And I think we could have done more. We could have gotten brought more hotel and motel rooms online. And, you know, I think we could have expanded the program instead of stopping it at at a somewhat arbitrary place. And I know even long before, um, months before I even started in my role, some of the original project room key sites had already started transitioning back into hotels, regular hotels. There was no need for that. There was no need for that speed yeah. to kind of, um, you know, take away these rooms, but I do think that the program held lessons for us in terms of how do you mobilize all of these institutions in a in a kind of an emergency way um, and with a speed and with a focus that we hadn't seen from the system before, not just on addressing homelessness, but really in working to get people off the streets and indoors.
0: Yeah, it it seemed like, you know, we have such a huge homelessness problem. There's so the population is so large here. So it's like 66,000 versus the number of shelter beds available. Do you think that given this new progressive coalition that we have within the city council, that they're going to be, you know, maybe something we'll see to kind of combat things like 4118, you know, to, to maybe take over work, you know, workspaces and convert those. Do you see that as like, do you have an optimistic vision of that for going forward with this new city council?
1: (laughs) Yes, I I do have, I have a lot of hope for this moment for sure, but I do want to be realistic about kind of what the, what the limitations of the numbers of progressive council members there are and what we're up against in terms of the system that continues to exist here in the city of Los Angeles, but also to say that I do see that there's a lot of room for hope. So one is that even with the elections at Eunice and Ugo, we still don't have a lot of council districts that are that are being held, that where seats are really being held by self-described progressives, right? Um, And I would say that the majority of the council still wants to have, you know, um, the expansions of 4118 that we saw over the last two years or the reinstatements of 4118 um, that we saw over the last two years, I would say the majority of the council still wants to keep those in place, still wants to continue putting in new sites uh, where they want to ban camping in their own districts, and still sees that as a useful tool to combat homelessness in their districts. Where I do see a lot of hope is that even though we don't have the numbers to undo some of the bad policymaking that we've seen over the past few years, particularly um, the focus on a district by district approach to homelessness, we have a new energy from a new mayor that wants to centralize our response to homelessness. I would say that, you know, I've had so many conversations already with the mayor elect and her team about what they want to centralize in their office that that currently is left to council offices to do. So for example, here's like a really basic thing in a city that's facing a homelessness crisis, the search for new interim housing sites is largely left to council offices. Right? So my staff is out there when I first got in got into the seat, I started calling with my staff and I started calling hotel and motel um ho- owners in the district one of my staff members dressed up in a suit had and we couldn't even get business cards from the city in time he like printed up kind of fake business not fake they were his real title <laughs> <laughs> but he printed them up himself at a local copy shop and just like walked from um, you know walked and drove to all of the hotels and motels in our district and like handed out his cards wow. and talked to them one on one and finally found a hotel owner who was willing to um to 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 join the program now in a city where the entire city machinery was mobilized around what is the single biggest crisis facing Los Angeles, and I think everyone in LA would agree that homelessness is our single biggest crisis right now, why is the fi- the finding of interim housing beds or interim housing sites or opportunities left to individual council offices? To me, that makes zero sense. Uh, and I think I've been really excited about the fact that we have you know, uh, a real energy in not just these new council offices coming in, but also a new mayor's office coming in to say, let's build a new city machinery that is designed around expanding beds, expanding housing, and getting people off the street as quickly as possible, as safely as possible, and making sure that they can be indoors. Um, And I'm really, really excited about that. I am also excited about it,
0: but I am also skeptical because our new mayor, Karen Bass, while I'm very happy she defeated uh, that billionaire Grove creator. I am also concerned because she is for funding the LAPD and expanding their budget and has been pro police. And I recently had a really terrible experience with police citing 4118 sweeping my neighborhood. And I know that they work in coordination with sanitation crews. So is there a little bit of like contradiction in her policies, do you think? How do you feel like the the role of the LAPD, what do you think their role is and what do you think it should be in terms of addressing homelessness?
1: One of the biggest goals that I had in addressing homelessness in my district was as much as possible to take police out of our homelessness response, right? So when we talked to senior lead officers who served the district uh, or or who served neighborhoods in the district, they would tell us anecdotally that forty to seventy percent of their time was spent in responding to calls about homelessness that did not involve violence or weapons or anything that you'd need an armed officer present for. It was literally people calling about an unhoused person, maybe an unhoused person having a crisis of some kind, but most of the time just calling about an, the existence of an encampment. Right? That's not a good use of our city's dollars or our mm-hmm. people's time and it's they're you know our LAPD are not trained to address most of the issues that that lead people to be on the streets and so in in I think we can you know what we've done in my district is really to try and have a response that is robust enough that we can you know, when when we have calls about homelessness, that we can actually have people who are trained to do that work and to be able to do that work to go out and call, uh, respond to those calls rather than LAPD. There is a formal program called the Circle Program, which has been a pilot program that's been instituted in a couple of different neighborhoods. It's in Venice, it's in Hollywood, and now it's expanding actually to cover Council District four parts of Hollywood, as well as Los Feliz, which is really exciting. And that will actually route nine one one calls to unarmed responders um, who are trained okay, to respond to issues related I'm to homelessness. Loving this. Yeah, which is really great, right? Really yeah. great. Um, and so I think there are there are definitely ways in which the city has been working totally in a piecemeal fashion. I'm not um, defending the city and saying that we've done enough on this issue, but definitely the city has been working to try and find alternative responses to these kinds of calls and to actually make sure that those calls that are coming through 911 are actually going to these, you know, more appropriately trained responders instead. And I think we can think about expanding that citywide. Uh, So I think if you're talking about the role of LAPD in homelessness response, I think that the biggest thing that a council office can do or that a city can do, is to really do the work in terms of homelessness response. I feel like a big part of the reason why we see LAPD out there a lot is because the rest of the departments and the rest of the nonprofit providers and the rest of the elected offices are not doing their work. The Department of Mental Health, for example, is an LA County department, right? So if someone is having a mental health crisis and you call LA uh, the uh, Department of Mental Health's urgent line, they will not be able to send someone out to you for multiple days that's how the system is designed right now yeah that's rough you know that's really really rough you know so we have to, like I, I i think we need to get for anything that is not related to violence or something a situation where people have weapons i think we can create a system where LAPD is not required for those situations But we have to really work to create that system. What do do the elements of that system look like? How does it work? How do you triage calls that come in and make sure that the appropriate people are going out? How do you make sure that the system is robust enough to handle call volume? How do you make sure that you're even preempting those calls by actually just being out there on the streets all the time? You know, I think you can have mobile clinics, mobile mental health workers who are just out there, not that they're responding to calls, but that they're just out there proactively. And that is what we've done in our district to a large extent. And I think we can expand that. We can make that more robust. We can build a system that our city really deserves. And I I am hopeful at this moment that we can do that.
0: Maybe we can reallocate that budget, Karen Bass, <laughs> maybe a little bit. Maybe the LAPD doesn't need it if we can get those mobile vans out there. Or maybe, I don't know. I try to, you know, interact with the encampments around me, but I I, as an individual, feel like, pretty helpless. So I think having a city council member that I believe in, which I now do, <laughs> thanks, Hugo, um, that would help a lot, I think, in in increasing the confidence I have in the city. Speaking of my confidence in the city council, can you give me the tea on what is happening with Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cidio? Because why are they still there? What has happened? <laughs> do they think that we have forgotten? What is going on? These men were like, let me take a break. And then now they're not representing their districts, right? They're just, the police are at your city council meetings. What is the chaos they have left in their trail? Can you give me the tea on what's happening behind the scenes?
1: I mean, today I came into the back of, you know, into council chambers and I found um, a member of the press kind of crouched there. And I was like, what are you doing? And they were like, Oh, I'm on Kevin DeLeon watch. <laughs> like, There's paparazzi for Kevin DeLeon. Incredible. I, I did not ask any follow-up questions. I just walked in. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think it you have to. So Gil Cio is almost out. He was already his the, you know, the terrible things um that went on around redistricting, the racism, that those that abhorrent conversation, um, all of that stuff uh was was really that conversation was happened in the context of these three people trying to preserve their own electoral power, to trying to preserve uh, their seats in office and trying to preserve their allies' seats in office. And you know, honestly, they they already failed in the case of Gil Cedillo. He was voted out, and Onisist is all set to take his place. And so she's going to start on Monday. And uh, so he hasn't resigned. He hasn't come back to council. But he doesn't need to because the people have spoken and a new member will be representing that district shortly. Kevin DeLeon, I think, is a different uh, as a different question. Um, I think the entire world has set called on him to resign, including the president of the United States. Wild, (laughs) wild (laughs) that he went on a radio
0: show and was like. I don't think it would be good for me to resign, even though literally everyone is asking me to. The, <laughs> I, just,
1: I want that confidence, like, going into a date, you know but what I mean? That's what, that's what I was, you know, honestly, like, yes, I am, I'm horrified. I'm angry. I, you know, I stand with the community and continuing to demand his resignation. But also, God, to be born with that level of confidence, I mean... Incredible. It's incredible. I don't know if it's because I'm a woman. I don't know if it's because I'm South Asian. I don't know if it's or like I'm maybe a
0: woman.
1: maybe even that you're remotely
0: self-aware.
1: <laughs> that might I be guess part of it. That's a more positive way of
0: thinking about it. Um yeah. So that's just it's crazy that he's still I mean, because it it feels like, you know, him not resigning is causing the city council to like be less effective. It's also the, even though Gil's not resigned and he's, you know, getting kicked out, it's the principle of the thing because he's still getting paid, right? These city tax dollars paying for them to disrupt the workings of the city. So that's just like infuriating. So I can't imagine what it's like trying to get stuff done while that's happening.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the bigger issues here also is that we had this moment, the tapes came out and already there has been such a lack of faith in our in in our local government, right? So we've had multiple council members be indicted by the FBI and get arrested. We've had a situation where we've seen a crisis on our streets that's been worsening year after year. And I feel like we have a situation here in Los Angeles where a lot of people don't feel a lot of trust and faith in their local government at all. And so for me, one of the, you know, I think, in addition to all of the all of the horror and shock and um and disgust that i felt in hearing those tapes the continued refusal to resign i think underscores that may, you know underscores people's lack of trust and faith in, in our local government and when someone is there so clearly not doing the right thing for the people that they were elected to represent. I mean, I think one could argue he's, you know, Kevin DeLeon has been removed from all of his committee assignments. He, um, you know, he he's not out there past, you know, putting legislation forward, representing his district in debates about important policies that are being debated and discussed and passed in the city. Um, we, you know, we have a big, big moment ahead as we try and put together, cobble together tenant protections before the end of the COVID state of emergency. And that's going to be a really important and tough conversation. And council district 14 constituents voices are not being heard in those debates because he's not there. And so, you know, I think to me, it's just it's sad. It's sad. And it, and I think it reinforces people's lack of faith in the government. And I hate that because I want people to believe that government can do better. I want people to believe that people will get elected who are not there because they want to serve themselves. It's because they really want to serve the people.
0: You know what? You've convinced me. I'm unfollowing him. So. <laughs> I'm so glad that we spoke. That. <laughs> I'm so glad that
1: we spoke. I know his thirst traps have just been keeping me going, but now I'm gonna unfollow. One of his last, um, I think, Instagram videos or whatever, some social media post was with uh, Bad Bunny. So no way. He's got Bad Bunny pull. Bad Bunny would not approve of this. No, no he Bad just Bunny. gave Bad Bunny a certificate on behalf oh. of the city of Los Angeles. And so that was one of his last, last posts, I believe, before all of this went down. So I I do, you know, I understand why people continue to follow him because I feel like ba- I who mean, doesn't
0: love Bad Bunny? Benito would not approve of what is happening. So <laughs> yeah. resign Kevin DeLeon. Okay, you um, brought this up. So I wanted to talk about this. Um, There, in terms of tenants protections and eviction protections, um, can you kind of clarify, because I was a little bit confused um, in what happened with voting. I know that there have been some controversial votes recently. Can you kind of explain what is happening with tenant protections and eviction um, protections? I think it was, you know, delayed until February. Can you kind of explain that?
1: Yes. So. Actually, today was a big day for for those questions, and I think it's important for people to understand where we are um, in terms of thinking about the COVID state of emergency and the related um, uh, eviction protection. So we have a we have an eviction moratorium here in the city of Los Angeles that is connected to our COVID state of emergency. So basically because there is a state of emergency, the city was able to pass a temporary measure limiting when and how a person who's in uh, a rental unit can be evicted. And there have been prior discussions about ending that eviction moratorium. It's, you know, Los Angeles has had the longest moratorium on um, on evictions, I think in the country, I believe. Um, And so there were ongoing discussions about when to end that eviction moratorium. There was a lot of back and forth about it. A lot of people on the council wanted to end the moratorium quickly. There was pushback from myself and a few other council members to say, we can't end the moratorium without having tenant protections in place. And so the two were moving forward in a linked manner. The council members who wanted to end the moratorium had the votes to end it. But because a few voices were there who were saying, we have to pass these additional protections, we, those, the protections were basically linked to the, um, linked to the end of the moratorium and we're moving forward in council together. After that, that process, that discussion took place, um, the tapes were, tapes came out. And so the deal that had been worked out where these, not the deal, I don't know, it's not a deal, but just, you know, the, the kind of the protections that, 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 everyone thought would were agreed upon and the end of the moratorium that that had been agreed upon suddenly everything was thrown into a little bit of chaos but there was still a push to end um end the end the moratorium and today actually there was a vote to end the covid's not to end the moratorium but to end the covid state of emergency and so many people wanted to end the covid state of emergency that Instead, what ended up happening was that the mayor essentially wrote a letter suggesting that there was a firm end date for the COVID state of emergency. And so that end date that the mayor wrote a letter in support of was February 1st would be the last day of the COVID state of emergency. So automatically that the eviction moratorium, which is linked to that COVID state of emergency will now end on that date. I voted against that firm end date, as did two other council members. But the end of the moratorium, the end of the COVID state of emergency passed easily through council, right? And so now what remains ahead is really to say um, how can we get these protections in place and how can we make sure that the protections are enacted with an urgency clause so that they're in place when the moratorium lifts so that people who are in those units have additional protections that they didn't have before the pandemic that will hopefully prevent evictions from happening. Okay. I also want I also want to be very, very clear that um, at the end of the eviction moratorium, that doesn't mean that all of the rent debt that you accumulated during the pandemic is immediately evictable debt, right? So let's say you've accumulated a couple of thousand dollars worth of rent debt during the pandemic. At the end of the moratorium, that basically starts a clock and you either depending on when you accrued that debt you either have 6 months or a year to pay it back and only new debt that you accrue after the end of the eviction moratorium is evictable debt and then and then and then we have a year to pay back the rent debt from the previous period so okay. i think i've heard a lot of people who have been very concerned saying i have you know i've a couple thousand dollars worth of debt i can't pay it back right away and we've been getting calls into our office and I've been, we've been trying to reassure people. It doesn't mean that you have, to, you owe it on February 1st. It's that you have, it starts the clock ticking for a year long period um, in which you have to pay it back.
0: Okay. I have two questions.
1: Yes. One. Sorry. I know it's, I know it's confusing, but it's very hard because we're basically going back and forth in the council um, and trying to extract additional protections from this process. And it's just been a, it's just been a long process.
0: No worries. But one, does COVID know the COVID state of emergency is going to be over? And two, I did see like a tweet from the tenants' union that was a little bit. It it sounded like they were upset that you had scheduled a vote or that you had not voted with the you know a progressive perspective in mind. Is that the clarification? Like what happened today, where they where they weren't linked anymore? Is that kind of undoing? that kind of maybe resentment there or...
1: there was no way there is no way to move forward like the end of the eviction moratorium is in, in my mind was coming and is and now is definitely coming right the end of the more yeah. like there was there was no pathway to have a permanent moratorium on evictions in Los Angeles the numbers okay. simply are not there in the council for something like that right and so in that context, I think the question for people who are in here trying to f- find protections for a very, very precarious renters right now is to really push on that question of tenant protections. Um, and without scheduling a vote on those tenant protections, there were other pathways through which the moratorium could have ended. For example, if the mayor had simply said, I'm not proposing a COVID state of emergency anymore the covid state of emergency would have ended automatically with no protections right
0: okay.
1: so without so so just to be clear there are multiple pathways through which the eviction protections could end through which the covid state of emergency can end the mayor can end it the council can say no to it but only council action can bring forward tenant protections And so my role here was really to say, okay, the eviction moratorium is going to end at some point in the future. And I kept amending it to try and make it later and later and getting voted down. But I need this is the only pathway to putting more tenant protections into place. And I think it's important that we fight for them to sit by and to do nothing while the inevitable happens and tenants are out on the street to make a point. Yeah. So, you know, it's yeah. just like, that's not, I, you know, I feel like I'm here because I want to exercise progressive power to make sure people as are, are as protected as possible. And I will do everything in my power to do that. So what ton of protections are you pushing for? So the, the, the thing that I think is most likely to, um, have the support of the full council is, uh, is universal just cause protection. So right now there are, this means that people can only be evicted from their homes for a certain set of predetermined reasons, um, and that anything outside of these reasons, uh, you know, means you you can't evict someone. And if you do evict someone uh, for 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 other things, then you have to provide a relocation fee. And so this. Just cause protections were limited to people who are in RSO units. These are rent stabilized units, which are the majority of the city's housing stock, but there's hundreds of thousands of people who live in non-RSO housing stock. And for all of them, there are basically almost no renter protections on the table whatsoever. And so adding universal just cause to those hundreds of thousands of residents, often some of our most vulnerable residents, I think would be a very, very powerful protections. Um, There are two additional protections that are being discussed right now, but there's no agreement on the council of what version of these protections will pass the full council. One is a relocation, um, is basically a, a relocation fee that a landlord has to provide to a tenant if they raise the rent over 10%. So it would be basically, it's called a, it's a relocation fee for economic displacement. So if you're raising the rent a huge amount and your tenant is being displaced because of that rental increase over 10%, you have to provide a relocation fee to them if they need to leave your unit as a result of it. The second is a floor under which you will not be evicted if you owe rent. So the report that came out from the housing department proposed that one month of rent um, is up to one month of rent is not evictable debt. But I'm not sure what will have the votes to pass full council, right? Okay. What is the floor under which um, you, you can't be evicted? I think both of those are very, very powerful protections for renters and, and really worth fighting for. I'm, I'm gonna be fighting for the fullest, most robust version of those protections. But you know I, I think it still remains to be seen over the next few weeks about what has the votes to pass.
0: Okay. And then I just really quickly wanted to talk about transit. Um we were talking about implementing Vision Zero in Los Angeles because so many people have been killed in traffic related incidences, 294 people in 2021, which was a 20% increase over the previous year, and pedestrians were 132 of that. One of my friends passed away um because of a hit and run. And so this is something so that's sorry. like thank you. This is something that's pretty important to me. Um where, where do you think we go from here in terms of protecting pedestrians, addressing traffic related incidences and trying to get down to zero pedestrian deaths?
1: Yeah, this is a great question and it's a big question. Um, and I think there's a lot of pieces that need to move forward in in order to really protect people who are users of our city streets and sidewalks who are not in automobiles. What? And I can talk to you about a couple of pieces that I think are important. One is that the city of Los Angeles has a department of transportation that is supposed to design better, more protected streets. And we, for a city of our size and for the number of miles of street that they oversee have almost no people on staff who can actually do that work this is that urban planner coming out, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, you have to, you have to have the, I mean, it's the same thing for renter protections. You have to have the people in the housing department who can pick up the phone and help a renter when they call, right? Who can go out and inspect a unit when it's in bad shape. Similarly for a street, if you want to design a better street, you've got to have somebody who can actually design that street. Yeah. Even if it's just putting together, even if it's just using a guidebook and implementing it, you still have to have that level of technical skills and to put forward a plan that the city can then implement, right? We simply do not have those positions. And one of the ways in which I've been pushing on this is to increase our allocation in our Department of Transportation for people who are skilled at doing active transportation planning, that active transportation is anything where you're not in an automobile, right? Yeah. and I think having more of those people will enable more council offices and more, you know, neighborhoods in the city to have interventions which can make streets safer, which can make intersections safer, and which can help us move in the right direction. The second piece is that I think we just have to have more courage as a city. We have to have more people who are elected to office with the promise that they're going to fight for safer streets, right? Because when you're elected on the basis of of talking to people about what your priorities are, and people say, I agree with those priorities, and I'm going to hold you accountable for those priorities. That's what you're going to fight for. And I'm excited because I feel like, uh, you know, both Ugo and Aonises were talked about these issues a lot, have a big crew of people who supported them in their campaigns, who really care about these things. And when they make a change in a street that potentially slows traffic, that makes an intersection safer, that makes it safer to ride a bicycle, but has maybe a couple of losses of parking spots or maybe makes cars go a little slower, that the blowback they get from people who are angry about that will be matched and maybe more than matched by the support that they get from people who are saying, yes, this is what I wanna see. You know, And I, I'm very hopeful that that will be the case. I certainly have felt like whenever we've made interventions in our district streets to make them safer, to make them, um, you know, better for 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 users of active transportation, for the most part, people have been very, very, very grateful, and um, and I think that the mood is changing in Los Angeles around these things, and I think we're going to move in a better direction.
0: As someone who does not have a car, I also am very grateful <laughs> when the streets are safer. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and for clarifying all of these issues and your stance on them. It was amazing speaking with you. I'm so happy I got to meet you. We're dimpled, Daisy twins over here. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing.
1: Incredible. I know. I really appreciate (laughs) it. It is like looking in a mirror. We even have the same hairstyle right now. Thank you.
0: I know. I'm kind of like the same (laughs) color tones going on.
1: (laughs) It's really funny. Actually, I'm going to take a screenshot.
0: Okay. Ready? Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Okay. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you and happy to come back and talk more.
0: Awesome. Meeting adjourned.
1: That's what I say at the end of the (laughs) episode. Nice. (laughs)
0: episode of the city council podcast was written created and produced by paula vegan allen that's me the music was written and produced by ruby ibarra be sure to follow us at city council spelled s-e-l show on instagram and twitter for more weekly podcasts and live stand-up comedy shows to support the show and for exclusive bonus content please join the patreon at patreon.com forward slash city council show thanks for listening